the hero always wins. Heroes seem to always win. Well, at least that's what we're told to think in most dramas. Whether they're the ones we read or the ones we watch in movies or the ones we see played out in Broadway, we often are exclusively told that the hero of the story always wins. We expect it. In fact, we would probably be disappointed if our hero always died, if Superman always died or Batman never won. Stories are told, if they're good ones, where we're drawn into the protagonist or the the hero of the story. Good stories draw us in on his side. If you think about it, when's the last time you watched Star Wars or any other movie of the sort where you've been drawn to be on the dark side. No, we are often drawn to the good guys. We cheer on the good guys. We cheer on and we say that the antagonist is the bad guy, the one who we hate. Good movies do this. Good plays do this. Good books do this. They draw us in and we sigh. We don't even recognize that we're taking sides. But every story you read or every movie you see, you are drawn into this battle between the good and the evil, or the bad. And so when we read our Bibles, well, naturally we do the same thing. We read the Bible in such a way that we align ourselves with the protagonist, the hero. So when we read the story of Joseph, and his little brothers, or big brothers. We, we, we often align ourselves with Joseph. We, we, we get on Joseph's side. Or when we read the story of David and Goliath, we, we're out there in the battlefield with David, cheering him on, kill Goliath. Or, or when we're with Jesus, we're on the side of Jesus when he's being attacked by the Pharisees. Or when we hear about the apostles, we, we cheer them on as they fight against the evil around them and win back the kingdom of God. When we do this, when we read ourselves as the heroes of the Bible, or at least align ourselves with the protagonist rather than the antagonist or the evil, well, we fundamentally miss what the Bible is really about. When we align ourselves with the good guys, and read ourselves as the Davids who need to defeat the Goliaths in our life, or the Josephs who need to run from immorality and stand upon truth, which are all true things, we miss the point of the story. We're not meant to read the Bible as if we're the heroes or that we're on the side of the good. No, rather, we're to read the Bible as God as the hero of the story. That God is really the one who's the hero in the story of Joseph, for example. The Bible tells us in Genesis 38 that Joseph, his life was all a part of God's sovereign purposes to get the nation of Israel down into Egypt so that he could ultimately free them and rescue them. We hear in the story of David and Goliath, the story isn't really about David. And David even says the story is not about him. It's about the Lord 
who shall come against the army of the Lord? Well, clearly in the story of Jesus and, and the apostles, the story isn't about them. It's about God and the work that God is doing through Christ. So I warn you of this this morning. Because when we come into passages like the one we're going to consider today, the temptation for us often is to get on Jesus' side. Like, get behind Jesus' back and say, like, Jesus, we're here for you. We're with you. We're in it. Get those nasty Pharisees. Yeah, you tell them. You tell them how things are. We get on his side. We cheer him on. But friends, I just want to remind you, Jesus' own disciples didn't cheer on Jesus. They fled. They ran, they hid, and they cried. Now this morning, my hope is that you will see this story in the light that you are the Pharisee. Soren Kierkegaard, a, a philosopher a couple hundred years ago, wrote that when we read the Bible, we need to read the Bible as if we are the Pharisees. That we are the antagonists. And that God in his sovereign purposes is working out to defeat the evil in our lives, to rescue us from our rebellion. So friends, I hope that you don't read yourself this morning as the good guy. But allow God's spirit to see that you are the bad guy. Or girl. And that you need Jesus this morning. That we are the ones, like the Pharisees, who before Christ was against God and His redemptive plan. And I pray that your sins are laid bare, that you're reminded that you once rebelled against God. Well, I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some pew Bibles in front of you. It's page 848 in the pew Bibles. If you're not used to looking at God's Word, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and those small numbers are the verse numbers. And if you're just not used to looking at God's Word, or you're not familiar with this whole preaching thing, I just invite you to just leave the Bible open. Look for those little small numbers as I make reference to them, because um, they will help you to stay awake uh, through this. It's a true story, see? There's testimonies right there. Those are That's people testifying to that truth. Amen. Mark chapter 12 and verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give to the vineyard others. Have you not read this, this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We've been considering in Mark's gospel, Jesus' confrontation with these religious leaders. So if you're kind of joining us or, you know, we kind of took a break last week with our guest preacher. We've been looking at a few verses here in Mark's gospel where Jesus here in the, the final week of his life. Really, we're just three days from the cross now. And Jesus here is being confronted over and over, challenged one after another by the religious establishment there in Israel. And the question that we want to have kind of in the back of our minds to help us as we think about what this passage means and really how to apply it to our lives is, is that question that they asked Jesus back up in verse 28 of chapter 11. So just kind of gaze your eyes up just to up a few verses to verse 28. And you remember that Jesus' disciple, or excuse me, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders, and they asked Jesus this question: By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you authority to do them? And remember, Jesus had a little back and forth with them. He he said, Well, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And just really frustration uh, ensued, and, and ultimately Jesus left the question unanswered until now. What Jesus is going to do in this parable is really as you, I hope, see and as Mark clearly tells us, this parable is about the Pharisees. This is quite natural. Just reading this, you're going to see little clues in there that he's kind of digging, if you will, uh, at the Pharisees. He's kind of making fun of them. He's kind of uh, indicting them, if you will. But he's also answering that question, where did he come from or by whose authority is he doing the things he's doing? So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as you think about that. And then also remember Jesus' purpose for parables. So we haven't really read any parables for, for a while. It's really been about six months or more since we really considered a parable in Mark's gospel. But all the way back in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, Jesus has these lengthy kingdom parables. And in these parables, Jesus is telling them. And often we, we are told you know, early on in life that parables are like sermon illustrations, right? They're like cute stories to draw the reader in. <laughs> well, that's really not true. <laughs> Jesus told parables to conceal the truth to outsiders, and to reveal truth to insiders. So you want to remember, parables ultimately are meant to convict and to conceal the truth from those who are opposed to Jesus. But this time Jesus tells this parable in a way that, that the Pharisees don't have any, uh, any excuse. They get it. They understand, as Mark tells us in verse 12, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They understood clearly this parable most assuredly was about them. So what is the point of this parable? What is the point of this sermon? Just really encapsulate it in just one sentence. Nothing remains when Jesus is refused. Nothing remains when Jesus is refused. That short sentence, it really encapsulates what Jesus is saying. If you reject me, there's really nothing else. It's as if there's multiple plans. And if you don't choose plan A, if you don't choose door number one, well, then there's door number two or plan B. Well, 
Jesus is clarifying for us this morning that if he is refused, then nothing remains. That God will justly judge those who reject Jesus. This Jesus, the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan, the one whom he is using to build the people of God, the church, in this new age of redemption. That's what we're going to consider this morning for our own lives as Christians. This has much application to us, and I hope you see it this morning. So I want to organize our thoughts really just around the characters of the story. Did you see the main characters? You have the the vineyard owner, the the guy who owns the land and who plants the vineyard. And then you have the tenants that he leases out, the the farm workers, the ones that are going to work the vineyard. And then finally, that, that beloved son we see. So I want to organize our thoughts around these three characters, and and we're not really stretching here. This is, I think, meant to be really read allegorically in the sense that uh, Jesus, I think, is clearly identifying who these players are, although he doesn't make it explicit. I think we can understand who they are. First, the vineyard owner is meant to represent or symbolize God, right? Do we see that, that this is God? That he's the one? Where do we get this from? How how do we even know this? Well, it's really because Jesus here is using and quoting Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. So if you have your Bibles, just turn there if you want, or you can just be lazy and not turn there. Uh, But it's in page 569 in your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me do this because I think it's helpful as you hear and see this similar language that Jesus used. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 5 in his story. He kind of used Isaiah 5 and he kind of says, hey, I'm going to take that, I'm going to apply it here to my situation and see its fulfillment. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. You see that theme of vineyard here. And the question you want to ask is who is the vineyard? My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, if you notice there in verse 2, the language Jesus uses uh, back in Matthew chapter, or Matthew, Mark chapter 12, is the same language. Uh, about God in, in chapter 1, or excuse me, in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says that God came, that this, this vineyard owner came, and notice what he did. He began to plant a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, or a vat, as Isaiah uses, and he built a tower, or Isaiah uses the word watchtower there. Uh, it's the same word, watchtower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And so what we see is really just Jesus here is speaking up. So what's really the point is what we want to see Isaiah is pointing to is the vineyard is the people of Israel. The people is the people of Israel. But what has happened is, is they've become wild grapes uh, symbolizing here that they have been infiltrated, that their ranks have been infiltrated with sin and particularly by intermarrying with other races, and therefore they are not pure anymore. And so what you want to see is that Jesus is here pointing to the nation of Israel, that God is the architect of redemption. That's what Isaiah is talking about here, is God's plan here in Isaiah 5 to redeem God's people from their sin. 
So God has found his vineyard all messed up with vines and wild grapes, and God has come and he's going to fix it. He's going to clean it up. He's going to get the wild grapes. He's going to get pure grapes back in there. He's going to clean up his vineyard. So, so this is all symbolism for God's redemptive plan. God's plan to save a people for his own glory. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling us here something about God. So I hope you see this, that God is the architect of redemption. God is the one who planted the vineyard. God is the one who put the fence around it to protect it. God is the one who, who built the, the vat for the wine to pour into. He is the one who built the watchtower for the watchmen to be on. He's the one who leased it out to tenants. God is the master builder of redemption. From the very beginning in, in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan and a purpose to redeem people for his own glory. Hear what Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 2, a glorious passage. This is really dripping, if you will, with God's purposes of, of salvation. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ when did he choose this? Paul tells us before the foundation of the world. So God's plan of redemption is grounded before he even created Adam and Eve. Before Adam and Eve even sinned. Before you and I even sinned. God had purposed before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Just think about that the next time you're like confronted with your sin. And you're like, oh, I hate my sin. God has purposed before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless. Grounded in eternity past, your future is grounded in God. He goes on to say that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And listen, according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Well, how do we have this? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. So, so Paul is just sort of kept caught up in God's redemptive plan, this, this grand master builder. Paul is, if you will, for us, laying out the blueprints of the building. He's saying, look at how the master has built the house. We're going to consider in a moment a little bit more of what Paul says than what he's building, as Jesus alludes to that, that God is building a building and that the cornerstone has been rejected by the nation of Israel. All of this we are to see that God is the architect of redemption. That God is the master builder. But we don't even see that. We also see that God is patient. God is patient. Did you see God's patience in this parable? Notice with me in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But notice what happens. They take him and beat him. But yet he sends another and then they beat him. They strike him on the head. Maybe they even chop his head off. And then he sends another and they kill him and so many others. God is patient, isn't he? You see God's patient love? I often find it humorous. And I don't mean this to be 
a slight at anyone who thinks this, but, but often people, when they describe the Bible, they'll talk about God in this way. They'll say, well, there's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, right? God of the Old Testament, the God of judge and wrath, and he's mean, and he's, you know, just want to kill everybody. And then there's the, there's Jesus, and everybody loves Jesus. He's, he's love and John 3.16 and all that, right? Oh, friends, God is love. 400 years he deals with the wicked nation of Israel. 400 years he lets wicked king after wicked king rise up. And he does nothing about it. But he patiently waits for the plan of redemption to unfold. God is love. The God of the Old Testament is just as much as a loving and patient God as the God of the New Testament. For they are one and the same. And Jesus points us to, in this parable, God's patient love for his people. God was patient with them, wasn't he? This is a story of Israel. He, he sent one servant, one prophet after another to warn them. The prophets of the Old Testament, what they were doing was pointing people back to the law. They were saying, get back to God. It's time to get back to God. If you don't get back to God, he's coming. He's going to kill you. He's going to destroy you. Get back to God. Prophet after prophet they sent. Ones they killed. Some they they hung, others they exiled. Prophet after prophet, servant after servant came. And God was patient. Martin Luther once cried, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched, wretched thing to pieces. I think that's true, isn't it? Of Maybe even your own life. You think about just God's patience. How often we are unpatient we are impatient we we don't wait we want to see quick results we want to see fast things happen we can learn much about God's patience for our own church as we often are given to quick gimmicks and quick fixes to to really systemic problems and sin we want to see and reflect in our own lives a little bit of God's patience patience with ourselves patience with others around us Patience even maybe with our own families. But we also see something about God here that is striking. That God is also a judge. We see in verse 9, Jesus concludes this parable with a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, what's going to happen to these guys? Uh, well, we know the answer, don't we? He's going to come and destroy them. Jesus here provides a reminder that God is a judge, as the psalmist tells us, at the set time that I appointed, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all the inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. God is a judge. We just need to reconcile with this. We just need to wrestle with this. That God, as the master builder, is a judge. He has the right to do with his creation whatever he wants. I often build Legos with my kids. Maybe you've done that with your kids or grandkids. You've made Legos with them. You've built things with them. One of the things you'll, you'll catch on very quick when you work with them with their little building projects is that you don't have the authority to do anything. You are merely a servant to build whatever they tell you to build. You are to put the pieces together how they want them, as ridiculous as it may be or, or how quickly you may think it's going to fall. They are the owner, and they have the right to do with those blocks how they wish to do with them. And so it is with God. God can judge and decide what he wants to do with his creation, and he is good and loving. 
That is his purpose. This is right. And we are accountable to him. So we see that Jesus presents to us much about God's character in this parable. So again, just a reminder, this story is not about us as much as it is about God and about his character and who he is. Let's move on quickly then to the second really main character, and that's the religious leaders, these tenants, right? These tenants. Uh, Jesus tells us in this parable, this story, that that the master or the owner of the vineyard leases it out. This would have been common in Palestine. This This maybe seems weird to us. Although, if you travel to the Midwest, this still happens today, even in parts of you know, Pennsylvania and other parts. If you own a piece of land, you know, you're maybe too old or don't have the equipment to farm it, and so you lease it out. You, you have someone else farm it, and you give them a little bit of the profit, and you take the rest of it. And so this is quite natural. This seems quite normal uh, for this kind of thing to happen. But what seems strange in the story is that when the, the master or the owner comes to collect some of his profits, the profits are withheld. But we see first here just a responsibility to bear fruit. That is, the religious leaders that this is pointed towards had a responsibility to bear fruit, didn't they? I mean, the master would not have sent the servant to go and collect wine if he did not expect wine to be produced. No, he expected that, that this, this vineyard would produce wine. We see as much in the care that he gave to building it. The intentionality in which he went about building the the vineyard demonstrates that he wasn't just hedging his bets. He knew that this vineyard would produce fruit. And so they had a responsibility to bear fruit. This is a theme we've seen, isn't it? We've hit on this theme over and over and again that we, even as Christians, have a responsibility to bear fruit. Jesus reminds his disciples over and over, if you do not bear fruit, you are not my disciple. And so it is with the nation of Israel. Over and over in Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets, uh, bearing fruit was a symbol of their relationship with God. If you were in the vine or if you were with with the vine, then you would bear fruit. Just as if the grapes don't just sort of sprout up on their own. They need to be a part of a vine. But also we see in this passage their relentless desire for self-gratification. A relentless desire for self-gratification. Don't we see that? Look with, it, look with me again verses, at verse 3. Look at how they treated uh, these servants. The first one, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Implied is what? That they kept the proceeds for themselves. All throughout this, none of these servants, the ones who lived or the ones who died, none of them get any of the fruit of the vineyard. None of them get the profit. And just to be clear, I, this, he doesn't mean that he sends like wine back with them. It was the money from their financial exchange of selling, right? And so the, the, none of them go away. And so they're keeping, they're hoarding. They're, they're, they're seeking selfish gratification, right? They're acting as if there's no consequences to their, to their actions. I mean, if you really think the ludicrous, it's just ludicrous story if you really think about it. I mean, after the first time, then the second, and the third, we don't really know how many servants were sent. A lot. One after another. They're brazen, aren't they? They're brazen in their attempt to, to squander the wealth. Friends, it's kind of like eating Thanksgiving dinner without thinking that you're going to gain any weight. 
I can have another thing. No consequences, right? We often, I think, kind of live that way during the holiday season, right? We'll get back to our diet afterwards, right? When, con- when what we eat actually has consequences. That's how they, they lived. They lived as if their actions had no consequences. But what we see then is the result then of refusing. What we're told here later on is that servant after servant came, but then look at verse 6. The owner had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him. But these tenants saw this as an opportunity to win. The son coming was a symbol to them that the owner had died. Really no reason that the son would have showed up unless the owner of the property had died and the son had taken over. And so by killing the son, that meant that everything would revert back to them, that, that in fact that the, the whole vineyard would be theirs. And so they're seizing on this opportunity and they refuse. Jesus uses this, doesn't he, to, to point towards the, the nation of Israel and to the religious leaders refusing of him. Their rejection in verse 10 as he quotes Isaiah uh, quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This rejecting of Jesus. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, this passage is just a warning, a raw warning that God is a just judge and that he will eternally judge those who refuse His Son. Friends, we cannot expect the nation of Israel today, though it is not the same nation as the Bible, to experience the blessings of God and refuse the Son of God. We must not be confused about that. It does not mean that the nation of Israel today does not have sovereign, you know, the rights to their own land. That's what I'm talking about. But as Christians, we want to be particularly careful saying that God is blessing rebellious people. God does not bless rebellion in this passage. But God destroys those who will not care for His people. As Christians... I just often wonder how are we refusing Jesus in our lives? You know, we kind of point the fingers and say this is like a non-Christian problem. This is like a secular problem. You know, it's the people out there who refuse Jesus. You know, they won't say Merry Christmas and all that stuff. Those are the people that hate Jesus. Well, I mean, really, would we expect any different? I really don't want non-Christians saying Merry Christmas. I don't mind them saying it. Do we expect anything less? But I wonder for ourselves, how are we often tempted to refuse Jesus in our lives? How are we often tempted to kind of say, you know, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't sufficient for me. I need more than Jesus. Perhaps a question you can reflect today, just in your own time. Does your life reflect that Jesus is enough? Do your thoughts Is your attention, do the things you give yourself to reflect that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient? That just leads us then to this third and final point, the beloved son. 
the beloved son. We see clearly that this beloved son is Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, has used this phrase, beloved son, only two other times. Both of them point to Jesus. Mark 1.11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Mark 9.7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If you are not convinced that this parable was meant to be interpreted the way we are this morning, those usages alone demonstrate that. Mark 1.11, Mark 9.7, all of those are God speaking about his son, right? And you see the same here. Still had another, a beloved son. They will respect my son. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the son and that this Jesus is sufficient to provide salvation for his people. God would not send an insufficient sacrifice. God would not send his son if his son was not sufficient. So we see much of Christ's sufficiency in this passage. The very fact that Jesus came demonstrates that. But we see more than that. We see the exclusivity of Christ. That not only is Jesus enough, but Jesus is the only enough. That there is no one more than him. Jesus here in verses 10 and 11 is quoting verbatim from Psalm 118. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. We see that Jesus here is the only way. The the cornerstone. The cornerstone. The cornerstone was the the key, the linchpin, the, the, the very piece that held the whole building together. That's what Jesus was here. He was the key. He was the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. Friends, rejecting Jesus is is akin just to rejecting the only plan to save you. Like if you had, for example, the the magic pill or, or, or the antidote to eradicate cancer worldwide, and you rather threw it out with the junk mail. This is what it is to reject Jesus. To say you have the cure for your sinful soul, but yet to throw it away, to reject it. Jesus here in this passage points to what God is doing or what God is building. He begins to use this language of building, right? You see it? A stone, builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. And it's marvelous, it's wondrous in our eyes. God is building a building, but not a literal building. God is building a people. The Bible tells us over and over again in using that sort of symbolism and and illustration that God is building a people. That the Bible uses this language, the body of Christ. That God is building the body of Christ in, in this new age of redemption. I just invite you to turn to Ephesians 2 this morning. And just see how these two passages, we're going to consider Ephesians 2 just in light of thinking about what God is building. Paul quotes the same passage and then what we heard in the scripture reading in 1 Peter. 
Remember, the apostles are interpreting Jesus' words. So we just go to them to find interpretation here. What is it that God is building? Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay? So what he's saying is that Gentiles, you were not just in a little bit of trouble, you had no hope. You were alienated from the commonwealth. You weren't part of the promised people. You weren't, you weren't anything. You weren't great. Nothing special about you. But God, verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So there's no longer two people, no longer nation of Israel and the church. There's one. He says that, doesn't he? One new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Gentiles and Israelites were once at hostility, but now are at peace through this new body. What is this new body that he talks about? And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. So that is the Gentiles and to the, and to the Israelites. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, here it is, himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, you see it, a holy temple in the Lord. God is about building a temple, not erected by human hands. Not positioned anywhere geographically, but a people. That's what God is doing. He's building a people with Christ being the cornerstone, the foundational piece, the foundation of the whole structure, the whole thing is joined together and it grows up together, both Jew and Gentile, into one house, united forever in Him, into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. All of that Old Testament stuff, was appointing us to what God was doing through Christ. The reason they built temples and the Holy of Holies and all that stuff was to point that God ultimately didn't want to build buildings. He wanted to build people. A holy people. So we turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is about building a new temple in this new age of redemption, and that is the church. God is inviting people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just from one nation. That was just a, an incubator, a, a picture of what God was going to do ultimately globally through Jesus. All of this reminds us that there is no other way. 
I hope you've seen through these various passages and in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the only way. Regardless of what Oprah says, right? Jesus is the only way. And now the goof T.D. Jakes. Whatever he says isn't true. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is a sufficient means of salvation. He's the only way of salvation. Friends, Christians, do you believe that? Do you give yourself to other means? Do you look to your own goodness? Do you look to your good works? Do you, do you look to your blessings and say, Ah, it's these things that give me standing with God. Oh, I pray that you would see God's wrath is coming against those who do not have Jesus. Maybe perhaps this morning you renew your trust in Christ. You cling to this promise. That he is about building a people. Maybe you don't feel very holy today. I know I don't often. But God is about building a holy people. That's the promise we have today. Remember, before the foundation of the world, you would be blameless and holy. Your holiness is as sure as that promise. Your holiness in Christ is as sure as God himself. If God cannot fail, neither can your holiness. I just wonder, are you the hero? Are you the hero of your own life? Are, are you the star of your own wonderful life? Are you the, the point at which everyone should look? If this is true, then Jesus will never be enough for you. If there's just a glimmer that there's something in you, I just want to remind you, Jesus will never be enough for you. You always run after something else, something more. But I pray this morning, I pray this morning that your soul will find satisfaction in Christ alone. That you will find in, in the darkest hours of your life or the mountaintops of success, that Jesus alone satisfies. That Jesus alone gives you peace. Friends, nothing remains when Jesus is refused. Nothing. There's nothing else. Nothing else but Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon once wrote, If you reject Him as Jesus, He answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. The love of God made manifest to us in Christ to save sinners like us. Let's pray. Eternal God, we give you glory and praise. And we do ask in your kindness and grace that you would stir our hearts and souls to find Christ sufficient for all things. God, we are so tempted to look to ourselves and to other things. Break us of these things. May we find Jesus enough today, tomorrow, and forever. In Christ's name we do pray.